This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Malka Simkovich. Dr. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and Director of Catholic Jewish Studies at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She's the author of Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, and has published widely on the topic of early Judaism. Today we're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism. Dr. Malka Simkovich, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. I want to begin by talking a little bit about you. You write in your book that you are an Orthodox Jewish woman, and I speak to a largely evangelical audience. They may not know what that means. So when we say that you're an Orthodox Jew, what precisely does that mean to you? You know, David, I've been at Catholic Theological Union for almost six years, and it wasn't until last year that I realized that for Christians, orthodoxy is actually a very different thing than it is for Jews. And so now I'm on a journey of discovery here, learning more about orthodox Christianity. And it is important to note that orthodox Judaism is not an equivalent to orthodox Christianity. Uh, for Jews, there's a very wide variety of what it means to be an orthodox Jew, but it's more of a generic term that refers to what we would call halachically observant Jews and halacha is the it means the way in Hebrew and it refers to what is required of being someone who uh, believes in a covenantal relationship with God as a Jew and an observant Jew would keep Shabbat would keep kashrut dietary laws would keep a whole myriad uh, set of laws that were established not only in the biblical period of the Hebrew Bible, but also by the rabbis uh, between the 2nd and 6th centuries CE. And so halakha, this way of life really, comprises ritual and also laws that are ethical. And so as an Orthodox Jew, I keep Shabbat from Friday night to Saturday evening. I pray three times a day. There are laws about, uh, very intricate laws about how to keep kashrut, dietary law. But within this system of law, there is a lot of variety. So as a modern Orthodox Jew, I might believe that uh, women can have positions of halachic, of legal authority, 
and that they can teach not just other women, but teach men and women in synagogues and in other public spaces. Other more right-wing Orthodox Jews might contend with that, might say, well, that's not modest and women shouldn't be taking on those public leadership roles. So there's a very big variety in terms of dress among Orthodox Jews and in, in terms of how they keep halakha. So it's hard to distill into just a few sentences. Uh, but as a modern Orthodox Jew, I don't look like what we would call an ultra-Orthodox Jew, although that's a term that I reject. I don't like to say ultra-Orthodox, even though we see that phrase in the media. I personally don't use that that term. And some of the terms that you just used. So for example, you use Shabbat. And so some of my listeners might recognize that from a Christian standpoint as Sabbath. Correct. And you, you said Kashrut, and some of my listeners might recognize that as kosher. Exactly. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is you participate in a tradition. And that tradition has a history. And it's got a way of interpreting the scriptures. And that interpretation leads to certain behaviors. First of all, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And one of the things that I work very hard on imbuing my students with this understanding uh, is exactly what you just said, which is that Judaism is evolving. My identity as a modern Orthodox 21st century Orthodox Jewish woman is not the same identity that a Pharisee in the first century in Judea would have had. Jews today are not Pharisees. We've had 2,000 years of evolving. And as Judaism has spread out, some Jews have have been living for 2,000 years in Middle Eastern countries. There are Ethiopian Jews, there are Moroccan Jews, Iraqi Jews, Irani Jews, Yemeni Jews, Egyptian Jews. And then, of course, there's this the stereotypical Jew that you see in the Western media, the Ashkenazi Jew, the Jew from Eastern Europe, the Oive, herring, bagel and lox eating, Seinfeld Jew. And I do admit, David, I am that Jew. <laughs> but I try to tell my students, look, there's incredible variety of what it means to look like a Jew, to speak like a Jew, and also whatever kind of Jewish person you are, in 2019, you're not a Pharisee. Things have, have changed as they change in any faith community over 2,000 years. Now, you hold a chair in Jewish studies at Catholic Theological Union, and in holding that chair, part of your task is to teach Judaism to Catholics, largely. So first of all, let me just ask about that. So you're teaching in a context that is a Christian context. Is that fair to say? Correct. First of all, how did you come to be a professor teaching in a Catholic school as opposed to teaching in a Jewish school? Well, it was very organic. I wrote a dissertation at Brandeis University on the topic of Jewish universalism and what universalism is. The implications of my argument were that Whereas scholars have assumed that Paul was borrowing universalist ideas from the Stoics who lived in the 3rd century BCE and the 2nd century BCE, in fact, the reality is Jews were developing universalist ideas for centuries, and along came Paul as a Jew, Saul, Shaul in Hebrew, was very influenced by these Jewish ideas that were in turn influenced by the Stoics. 
And so this argument that, first of all, every faith community has particularist and universalist qualities and that these qualities are not intention, but they're necessary to create a cohesive community. This argument brought me in contact with Father John Polakowski. Well, he was the director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program here at CTU, a legend in the world of Jewish-Christian dialogue. He heard me speak about this topic in Chicago in late 2013 and invited me to interview at CTU, I think largely based on the topic of my talk, because it really resonates with Catholics. I mean, I think one of the things that we're trying to do, not just, you know, I'm not an island here. I'm housed in the Bernadine Center, uh, which is the Center for Interfaith Dialogue at CTU, and I'm part of the Bible Department. And both in the Bernadine Center of CTU and the Bible Department, one of the things that we do here is we undermine binaries. There is this very damaging false binary that we see in Christian theology, not now, but up until 40, 50 years ago. And that binary is that Christianity is ethical, Judaism is legal. Christianity is universalist, Judaism is particularist. Christianity offers redemption to all of humankind. Judaism is misanthropic, internalized, obsessively legalistic. And the truth is, like I just mentioned, both faiths have particularist ideas and universalist ideas. And so one of the things I really try to do here at CTU is discuss those binaries and think about the reality that Jesus and his earliest followers were not working in opposition to a faith or their local Jewish community, but they were working within it. Of course, they were trying to effect change, but not necessarily start a new religion. And so you're part of a longstanding dialogue and tradition here at Catholic Theological Union. And so you're carrying on something that is deeply entrenched, if I'm hearing you correctly, in a way of doing Catholicism. If we have this notion of hospitality, which is what I'm hearing you saying, is there ever from either the Jewish side or the Christian side pushback against this notion of hospitality? Have you encountered anyone who thinks that there's something fundamentally wrong with you being here in a Christian context or you teaching Christians? That's a great question. I think over the past 20, 30 years, Jewish-Christian dialogue has become much more accepted in the Orthodox Jewish community. I don't get pushback. I get discomfort and awkward jokes. So many people will say to me, oh, have you converted yet? This is not a funny joke. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard it. It is not original. And yet people keep thinking that this is a funny thing to say to me. Someone said to me recently, have you converted anyone to Judaism yet? Which I thought was even, I mean, far more inappropriate and really misses the mark in terms of what I'm trying to do. I think I said to this person, if I converted anybody, I would no longer have my job. It's definitely not my goal, nor should it be. And uh, and I think that there is some discomfort, especially as you move towards the right wing community um, in Orthodox Judaism. But in my own community, I think that there's a lot of understanding of why this is necessary. But look, on the other hand, You have two communities, two religions, Christianity and Judaism, and this is not a mutual relationship. This is not an equal relationship. We're talking about trying to fix something that's been broken for 2,000 years, really until uh, the late 1960s with uh, the Second Vatican Council and Nostra Aetate, and that's just the Catholic side of things, right? 
So when a relationship is broken <laughs> for 2,000 years, really, I mean, of course, you have pockets of dialogue and pockets of harmony and peace, but really Jews having lived under Christian rule and suffering so profoundly, it's very hard to get some people on the dialogue boat. Nevertheless, it has happened, and actually some of the Jewish leaders who are most involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue are Orthodox rabbis and, and women. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Malka Simkovich. We're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, the scriptures and stories that shaped early Judaism. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich. We're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, the scriptures and stories that shaped early Judaism. Well, I want to dive into the book and talk about that. The book is set up in four segments, and those segments, if I were to give one word to characterize each, I'd say rediscovery to history to worldview to the Second Temple texts themselves. And so I kind of want to move through that stage by stage. Your story, even though it's about Second Temple Jewish literature, you really begin in the 19th century, and you begin with the discovery of one little piece of parchment. And maybe just tell us a little bit about that and what that unlocked. This is one of my favorite stories when we talk about the modern recovery of ancient Jewish texts. And I say recovery and not discovery because many of these Jewish texts were known to the people who protected them through the centuries, but they weren't publicly known or accessible. So I say recovered. And this is the story of the Cairo Geniza. Geniza in Hebrew means hidden away, and it refers to a place where you can put texts that have God's name. You can't throw these holy texts out, right? Usually when we're talking about a text with God's name, we're talking about something from the scriptures. And in Jewish tradition, you don't throw these texts out. You hide them away in a Geniza, in a special storage area. Let me see if I just have, have this straight. So it would be like when a text has begun to be worn out or no longer used in worship, you, you wouldn't just throw it away. You'd find a place to put it, almost like burying it. Is that fair to say? Yes, exactly. And some communities did just that. They would bury their texts. Interestingly, there are some genizas in Jewish cemeteries. So there were spaces in cemeteries set aside for Geniza scriptures, almost like these Torah scrolls and other documents had a kind of spirit to them. Other communities did not bury, but they stored their holy texts in rooms in a synagogue. And the story that we're going to talk about now is about a Geniza that was in an attic room. It was a room that was off of a opening in a wall at the top of the wall. So you really couldn't get to this opening without a ladder. And this room was set aside for holy 
Hebrew scriptures with God's name on it, probably in the early medieval period in the 8th or 9th century CE. And for about a thousand years, nobody emptied out this Geniza, cataloged it, went through these documents. Things were tossed in there and nothing went out. So it was known, but it wasn't really monitored or maintained. Well, it was considered a very sacred space. Mm-hmm. And this Geniza that we call the Cairo Geniza is in the old Jewish area of Cairo called Fustat. And it's in a synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue, a very ancient synagogue. And the administrators of the synagogue knew that this Geniza was ancient. By the time it was emptied out, there were about a quarter million manuscripts and fragments in the Geniza. It took about 50 years, even a little more, for everything to be sifted through and organized and published. So in the late 19th century, kind of following Napoleon's lead, Europe rediscovers Egypt and begins to incorporate Egypt, Egyptian ideas into its architecture, into its its culture, into its clothing. And so you begin to have Europeans traveling to Egypt. And in 1896, you tell the story of Agnes Smith Lewis, who is a, one of a pair of sisters. She inherited some money, and she uses that financial independence to begin studying, if I'm correct, biblical texts and to begin to study and to to travel to the biblical lands. And so she's there in an antique shop or some sort of shop. And do I have this story right, that she she picks up a piece of paper? and Yes, almost. This okay. is a phenomenal story. There are two identical twin Presbyterian Scottish sisters. Their names are Agnes Smith-Lewis and Margaret Dunlop Gibson. And in their early 30s, they both, within a very short time span, are widowed. And they have inherited a lot of money from their father. Their father has given them a great education. Even before they got married, they were instilled with the values of education. And really, there's nothing more serendipitous, I hate to say it, than being a woman with really no budget, no family to take care of. And again, I'm not wishing this upon any of my friends or myself, but if you wanted mobility and freedom to spend your life as you chose, it was actually easier to do so as a widow than as a single woman who had never been married. They had no children, these sisters. They had plenty of of money, and they had a great curiosity to see the world. Now, this story does intersect with this very colonial mindset in the late 19th century. And there was this uh, notion that it's very exciting to go to eastern lands to the orient and see the exotic people of course we would be very uncomfortable today having that mindset or talking about these regions in those terms but it was very normal and acceptable for highbrow english ladies to travel to exotic places and what were they looking for they were looking for relics of religious value. They were very God-fearing Presbyterian women. And just like many male scholars, they were going to places to see what they could find that would legitimize their already very fervent beliefs. So they go to Egypt, and they had already been traveling in other places. Um, They spent a lot of time. They made a few trips to St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Desert. But this trip in 1896 is to Egypt— Like you said, Agnes Smith-Lewis is approached, I think outside, I don't think it was 
in a store, but I think that there's an antiquities dealer in the open shops who approaches her and says, I have an ancient Hebrew fragment. And uh, she purchases it. It's a tiny little fragment of Hebrew. She doesn't know if it actually is because, of course, there are so many fakes. And we deal with this even today. Uh, there are so many fakes out there. Very controversial question. Even if you go to the Israel Museum, right, or museums uh, here in the States, what percentage of those things on display on, on exhibit are not even ancient? But that's for another conversation. So she doesn't know what this is. She purchases it and uh, the sisters go back to to Cambridge. And if you have an ancient Hebrew manuscript or a little, little fragment of one with a couple words on it, and it's 1896 and you're in Cambridge in England, who do you go to for information about what this is and whether it has any historical significance? And the answer is you go to Solomon Schachter. Solomon Schachter was a very, very renowned scholar of rabbinics at Cambridge. He knew easily six languages, maybe even more. And he is, I believe, of Romanian heritage. He is brought very orthodox. And um, over time, he ends up actually moving to the States later in life and is known today as being, in a way, the father of conservative Judaism. Uh, But this is before he moves to the States. He gets... Um, involved in Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS, which is now the mainstead of conservative Judaism in the United States. So they go, the sisters go to Salman Schechter and they present him with this fragment. They say, what is this? And when Schechter tells the story in a later article, he says, as soon as he saw it, he recognized it. He knew exactly what it was. And he almost fainted because it had so much historical significance that he was overwhelmed It was almost like all of his work had been leading up to this moment, and it just falls into his lap. So what is this little fragment? It's the Hebrew original of a text named Ben Sira, which is a deuterocanonical text in the Catholic Bible, in uh, in the Apocrypha. And he knows right away that it's a a little piece of this text, Ben Sira. Now, there was no Hebrew text of Ben Sira. But Salman Schechter was such a genius and had such an encyclopedic mind that he knew the Greek version of Ben Sira that was preserved in the Septuagint and then later translated into the Vulgate. He knew the Greek version, and he had been claiming that behind the Greek version was a Hebrew version written by pious Hebrew-speaking Jews in the beginning of the 2nd century BCE, and he had never been able to prove it. And now, as soon as he saw this fragment, he realized this is part of an original Hebrew Ben Sira document that was used, that was, it was written in Hebrew, and then it was later translated into Greek. And for Schachter, this is very, very significant. And so the Greek would have been a version that survived and the version that was used and passed on centuries and centuries later. But now he's able to get behind that to something that he had just imagined existed. And now he – that must um, – no wonder he almost fainted. That's the culmination of a life's work in one little fragment. And there's so much at stake theologically. Because Schechter is working against a wave of German Protestant scholars who are basically saying that Judaism in the Second Temple period, and this is very important, actually 
in a day-to-day way here at Catholic Theological Union, I talk about this all the time with my students, this misperception that in the Second Temple period, Judaism is on perpetual decline. And so by the first century, Judaism is a shell of itself. Jesus comes along, takes all the good stuff, culls all the ethical material, rejects all the ritual, meaningless stuff, right? Leviticus, who cares, you know? (laughs) And so Jesus takes all the good, you know, the ethical universalist material, and Judaism is just a shell of itself by the first century. And so what we have following the exile in 586 BC to 539 BC is we have the beginning of the end for Judaism. That's the that's what the Germans were saying. Correct. And of course, Schachter disagrees with this. But if you're going to play into this binary, then you would say, well, anything that looks like a wisdom text and anything that looks like it's concerned with human behavior, with universal ideas – well, that has to be coming from a Hellenized Greek-speaking Jew. And that the authentic Judaism, the priestly Judaism, the temple cult-based Judaism, well, they didn't care about that stuff. And so when Schechter finds a Hebrew original of Ben Sira, he gets to say, there is no binary. And Schechter says, I need to find the rest of this document. And this propels him to go back to Cairo and find out where this manuscript, where this little fragment came from. And before we take a break, did he find it? He did. Oh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich. We're talking about her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, the scriptures and stories that shaped early Judaism. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich of Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. We're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism. So just before the break, we were talking about Solomon Schechter. And we were talking about the way in which he had thought that there was a way to rehabilitate the idea of Second Temple Judaism against this argument that the Germans were making that it was a deficient shell of Judaism and that the only good Judaism was kind of Greek-based Judaism, not Hebrew-based Judaism. And two sisters go to Cairo, they find this fragment, and then when they find this fragment, they bring it back to Cambridge to Solomon Schechter. He realizes that it is the missing link to a book that he's been looking for, the wisdom of Ben Sira. And then he goes to Cairo and he finds that book. What happens next? It's not that simple. Oh. He has to go to Cairo, first of all, in secret, because he doesn't want to tell his colleagues at Cambridge what 
he's doing. He has a suspicion that there's a lot more where this came from, and he doesn't want to share it, not because he's that typical selfish academic who won't tell anybody about the book project that he's working on, but because he really feels like there's so much at stake. He needs to get to the bottom of this before other people uh, start to race him to it. And we have a great letter written by his wife, Matilda, to a friend in America saying, I can't tell you anything. This is kind of stereotypically Jewish, at least I think. I can't tell you anything, but my husband, Solomon, he can't answer any of your letters for the next month. It's super secret. By the way, he's uh, on a trip to a place that I can't tell you. Don't ask me any questions, but it's very exciting, and it has to do with ancient manuscripts. And then she, over the course of the the letter, reveals a little more and a little more. (laughs) But she doesn't reveal anything about the actual fragment that he's so interested in. So... He kept it on the down low for a bit. And when he gets to Cairo, he knows that there's this ancient synagogue, the Ben Ezra synagogue, and he ingratiates himself to the administrators of the synagogue who are in financial trouble. And over the past decades, actually, as far back as the 1860s, they had been allowing individuals to go into the Geniza and to uh, maybe purchase uh, something here and there. But no one really understood the significance of the Geniza until Solomon Schachter came along. It took him a few weeks to create a friendship and a trust before he was allowed to take a look at it and to analyze its contents. And when he finally does, this is in December 1896, he writes about it later And uh, the description that Schechter uses is absolutely mind-blowing. I actually think that I have a passage of it in my book. He talks about the haphazard manner in which all these documents for a thousand years had been thrown together. I'm looking at page 8 and 9 of my book. And uh, and Schechter says, The rabbi of of the Ben Ezra synagogue, Rabbi Ben Simon, introduced him to the beadle of the synagogue, who was the keeper of the Geniza. And then he has a great line. He says, this beadle authorized me to take from it what and as much as I liked. Now, as a matter of fact, I liked it all. (laughs) Now, Schechter talks about what he sees in the Geniza. He calls it a battlefield of books. And he says that there are different kinds of documents all mushed together, almost carbonized and like stuck to each other. And he says the some, are, some texts are ground to dust in the terrible struggle for space. Remember, he's looking about a quarter million, 250,000 papers just shoved together, no organization at all. And he says, in their present condition, these lumps afford suggestive combinations. When you find a piece of some rationalist work in which the existence of angels or devils is denied, clinging to life to an amulet in which these same beings, angels and devils, are bound over to be on their good behavior and not interfere with somebody's love affair. So there's no rhyme or reason. Everything is meshed together, reflecting different centuries, different geographic communities, different writers with different beliefs. It's all just smushed together. It's anything that had the name of God on it that needed to be preserved couldn't be thrown away because of the piety about these documents. And be, but because it could be anything, it literally, as he was walking through, it could be any, and it wasn't organized. Well, this is what makes... The Cairo Geniza unique is that at some point, and we don't understand exactly why, for some reason, it became more than just a repository for texts with God's name. 
There are Hebrew documents that are business contracts, that are marriage documents, that are personal letters. And what scholars think happened is that at some point, the Hebrew language itself took on a sacred quality for certain Jews. And so they were putting documents in the Geniza that had Hebrew on it and not God's name. But this is the greatest boon for scholars of the medieval period. There's nothing more significant to understanding medieval Jewish history than the contents of this Geniza. And, and Schechter did not find the Ben Sira fragment right away, but he is faced with something far bigger, and he ends up initiating this project to empty out the Geniza and bring it to Cambridge. It's a fantastic story. And when he does that, that begins to open up to us the second part of your book, which is really the possibility for the first time of reimagining the Second Temple period and medieval Judaism in a way that we never were able to before. First of all, is that a correct characterization of what this discovery unlocks for us? It is. And one of the strangest things about the Geniza is that it contains documents that were first written in the Second Temple period, why they ended up in the Geniza, who was reading these texts, not necessarily scriptural texts. Uh, it's one of the fun mysteries of the Geniza, and it, it's why it ends up in my book, which is really not about the medieval period. It's about antiquity. And so let's begin to sort of think about what the Second Temple period is. So we're talking about a period of time that spans between, and let me make sure that I have this right, it spans between the, the Babylonian exile when the Jews, and they aren't even called Jews yet at this point, when they are taken away from Jerusalem into Babylon. And then at some point, uh, King Cyrus, the righteous king of Persia, allows them to come back into the Holy Land. And then they rebuild the temple. And then the temple exists until roughly 70 years after the, the birth of Jesus Christ, and then it is knocked to the ground, and then there's a rebellion, and then they are scattered, and they begin to create what we now know as modern rabbinic or, or the beginnings of what have become rabbinic Judaism. First of all, do I have the timeline correct? You have the timeline, but not the geography, David. Tell me, Tell me the geography. What do I have wrong? Well, one of the misconceptions about the Second Temple period is that the Jews remain concentrated in Judea after 539 when the Persians say you can go back, rebuild the temple. It happens in about 515 BC, so the exilic period ends in maybe 538, but the Second Temple period actually starts Later in 515 BCE, of course, we're before the year zero. The numbers are going down. So the second temple period is between 515 BCE and 70 CE, roughly. Uh, but what we see really from 538 BCE is that Jews are spreading and spreading and spreading all over the world. And one of the main arguments of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the Jews need to return to Judea. Most of them don't. And so we have Jews who stay in Persia, and they stay and stay and stay. These comprise the Iranian Jews that are around today. They really stayed until the 1970s, until the Shah fell, and then they had to escape with their lives. There are only a few hundred, I think, Jews left in Iran today. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers, but most of them are gone. It's one of the oldest communities, though, to really have stayed in one place. Now there are many Iranian Jews in Los Angeles, in New Jersey, some even here in Chicago. But Jews do leave. Many of them do leave uh, Persia, uh, that area that where they settled in exile, but they don't go back to Judea. So really starting from the beginning of the Second Temple period, we have Jews settling elsewhere. When 
Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire, and the city of Alexandria is founded in Egypt. Uh, Jews settle there almost right away. There are Jews by the late Second Temple period in Rome, many, many Jews in Rome. It's also a very ancient community. There are Jews in Antioch. And so by the end of the late Second Temple period, the majority of Jews are not living in the land of Israel. That doesn't mean that they don't care about Israel. It doesn't mean that they don't view Jerusalem and its temple as the cosmic epicenter of their worship. We have a lot of evidence that Jews were making pilgrimage trips on holidays, Passover, the Pentecost, and tabernacles. But we have to reckon with the reality that by the time the temple falls, the rabbinic community can accommodate a reality that is diasporan. Synagogues are not a default invention that the rabbis come up with when the temple falls and then they say, hmm, now what? Okay, I guess we'll build a bunch of synagogues. Synagogues are actually around from the very earliest years of the second temple period and they are used for Jews to come together Jews who aren't going to the temple regularly, right? Jews all over what will become the Greco-Roman world, and they're coming together to read the scriptures. And one of the things that's reflected in the reality that you're talking about is that we're now not talking about a Hebrew-based language community, but a community that is going into multiple cultures and is maintaining Hebrew, perhaps, but is also beginning to speak and to translate scriptures into new target languages. Is that correct? Absolutely. And this is a very tricky and a little bit of a controversial topic, the question of was Hebrew a spoken language for Jews in the land of Israel? Uh, It used to be that scholars said no, it was a dead language by the late Second Temple period. Now some scholars are questioning that. That certainly uh, doesn't seem to be the case if you look at the documents found in the Dead Sea Caves and the Judean Desert. But Jews, of course, were speaking, the Jews in Alexandria were speaking Greek, other Jews in the eastern regions were speaking Aramaic, different dialects of Aramaic. And when this happens, of course, the Jews need their scriptures to be translated. And so the first translation or the most authoritative translation of the Hebrew Bible in Greek, known as the Septuagint, actually occurs pretty early on in the 3rd century BCE. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich. She's a professor of Catholic Jewish Studies at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich. We're discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism. Professor Simkovich, before the break, we were talking about the fact that in the Second Temple period, 
Jewish communities scattered across the Mediterranean and into many different cultures. Was there a preference for those that stayed in Jerusalem, or how did that work out politically for the Jews? Yes, this is a great question. I think many of us think, Jews and Christians alike, that the Jews in Judea preserved what we might call the authentic version of Judaism. And I mentioned to you before the break that Jews were by now spread out all over the Greco-Roman world, speaking different languages, adopting aspects of their host culture. But at the same time, there was no geographic binary. There was no relationship between where you lived and how pious you were. So you would have Jews in Alexandria strictly observing the Sabbath, keeping dietary law, practicing circumcision for their sons, and you would have Jews in Judea who were totally Hellenized. Today, we are living in a very globalized world, but the truth is, even in the first century CE, there was fluidity between these communities, and there really wasn't a binary in terms of piety when it comes to the Jews in Judea and everybody else. But at the same time, there was a sense that you had as Philo of Alexandria, the great Jew philosopher in the first century says, a Jew has a fatherland and a motherland. The fatherland is the host empire and you should be loyal and patriotic and you should be a good citizen and contribute to your host empire. But you have a motherland too. And the motherland is Judea, is Jerusalem and the temple. And that is where the heart of the Jew resides, even when he or she never lives to see it. Well, and so you have all of these documents that contain the name of God that are put into the Geniza, and they're discovered by Solomon Schechter. But then you also have these other documents that are translations that are the stories retold and retold into new languages. And is that how the stories have been preserved for us to this day? Or was there some other mechanism? Well, what's so interesting is that many of these texts and pious texts, texts written by Jews in different languages, in different cities and, and different regions of the Greco-Roman world, these documents were incredibly popular among early Christians who saw religious value in them and who saw a universalist thinking that they connected with and identified with. And so what ends up happening is that many of these texts that are not necessarily scriptural texts, but very popular and widely circulated, these become preserved by Christians. And so in the first three chapters of my book, I talk about different Christian communities that preserve for centuries and centuries these ancient Jewish texts. Now, that's incredible that we have these Christian monasteries and churches to think. On the other hand, the unfortunate aspect of that is that these texts have come to be read as having nothing to do with uh, early Judaism and everything to do with the rise of early Christianity. And again, that plays back into this notion that there's this binary. Uh, it's a false notion, of course, but many of these texts, which are very focused on the universalist aspects of Judaism, they become read as early Christian texts. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the Christian tradition reads them as correctives against some sort of deficiency in Judaism rather than being part of the wellspring of Judaism that was evolving in this Second Temple period. Do I have that right? That's very well said. And of course, there's incredible variety. Most of these texts are part of a collection that today we call the Pseudepigrapha. And the Pseudepigrapha 
is really um, not a great term. It means in Greek falsely attributed writings because many of these documents came to be associated with late biblical figures. So for example, you might have the book of two Baruch. Baruch is Jeremiah's scribe. Now, did Baruch actually write this text? No, it's probably a late first century CE text, but it becomes associated with Baruch. Or you might have four Ezra. Uh, again, did Ezra write this book? Very doubtful. But the Pseudepigrapha now comprises many documents that are not falsely attributed. It's really a catch-all term and refers to ancient Jewish texts that were preserved by the church, mostly anywhere written anywhere between 400 BCE and 400 CE that has some kind of religious significance for Jews and Christians. So there's almost no cohesive relationship between these texts. Well, this is fascinating to me, in, in part because in your book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, you make the observation that when we're looking at these Second Temple books, they're often retellings of the biblical stories, and they're told in ways that fill in the narrative gaps and they solve contradictions in the scriptures. So is it possible that some of these misattributions that happen in the pseudepigrapha when Baruch is said to be the author, was that because they discovered a name and nothing was said or very little was said about the person in the book and they began to fill in the story behind them and, and hey, he told this story and it just began to grow up over time? Or am I completely off base there? No, I think you're definitely right. I mean, when it comes to two Baruch and four Ezra, those really are not about the historical Baruch. They're about pretty dark prophecies against Israel that scholars think were responding to the destruction wreaked uh, following the Jewish rebellion in 66 CE. But I think you're right. You have these enigmatic characters in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, from the beginning of the Second Temple period, Jews are reading very carefully. They're reading their scriptures, maybe not in the original Hebrew, but they're reading their scriptures with a very close eye. And they're asking these questions. Why is this detail in the Bible there? It seems totally unnecessary. Or why is this very important detail missing from the text? And so a lot of what we have fill in those blanks or resolve contradictions. We have a great novella. Uh, Scholars debate about whether this is an early Jewish texts or possibly Christian. I'm on the side of looking at this as a Jewish document. It's called Joseph and Asenath. And this is the story of how Joseph and Asenath, her name is Osnat in Hebrew, fall in love. Because we have her name in the book of Genesis. We know that she's the daughter of a priest. We basically know nothing about this woman. How did it come to be that they fell in love and and stayed together? And so we have this wonderful book about how Asenath converts to Judaism, lest you think that the righteous Joseph married a daughter of a priest. That would be unacceptable, of course. So worry not. Asenath, in fact, upon seeing Joseph for the first time, was so overwhelmed by his good looks and his charm that she said, I need to be a part of his religion. And she converts to Judaism. She undergoes an incredible spiritual transformation. uh, And it's just a delightful story. This wonderful book demands your attention and is a treasure trove. Whether you are coming from the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition, I loved reading it. I learned so much from it. And thank you for writing it. And thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk to us about it today. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Professor Malka Simkovich. She is Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of Catholic Jewish Studies at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She's the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism from Exile to Alexandria, and she's published widely on the topic of early Judaism. Today we've been discussing her recent book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism. 
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.